Hello and welcome to the CityWire Healthcare Podcast, a new series brought to you in association with BB Healthcare. With me is Paul Major, who manages the Investment Trust assets with Brett Dark. Good to see you, Paul. We also have two leading medical experts, Professor Justin Stebbing and Professor Tony Young, who both sit on the board of BBH Healthcare Investment Trust as independent non-executive directors. Justin Stebbing is a professor of cancer medicine and oncology at Imperial College London, where he focuses on immunotherapies for breast, lung and gastrointestinal cancers. And Tony Young is a urologist and practicing NHS surgeon. In addition to two medical directorships at the Mid and South Essex University Hospitals Group and Anglia Ruskin University, he is also the National Clinical Director for Innovation at NHS England. Welcome to you both. Paul, I'll start with you first. What are you hoping to achieve with the three podcasts we're planning? Hi, Gavin. Brett and I are privileged to have access to a range of expert opinions within the healthcare sphere, not least on our own board. And we wanted to use the podcast as an opportunity to open up some of the discussions that we have internally to a wider audience. COVID-19 is obviously a huge debate for society, for anyone involved in the business of healthcare. And of course, we're all investors due to its direct and indirect impacts on our day-to-day lives and the wider economy. So I think over the course of the, the podcast, we're likely to focus Uh, on that as the sort of overarching theme, but to drill into different topics uh, during the three individual sessions. Okay, and and what is the topic uh, we're going to discuss today then, Paul? Today, I thought it would be enlightening to hear what the reality of the pandemic has been for those on the front line, how it's affecting care, how we think about the longer term impacts of all of this on the business of being uh, a specialist physician and to really get some insights into what it's like to be in that role. Justin and Tony uh, are, are brilliant uh, physicians uh, and, and their brilliance, I think, is matched by their humility. So they probably won't articulate quite what a leading role they've played through this pandemic. Tony for NHS England in terms of coordinating the response and Justin being at the forefront of research efforts around innovative treatments for patients with symptomatic COVID-19. So they're very knowledgeable on the subject from all sorts of different angles, but they also have that perspective of being frontline physicians. Okay, well, let, let's hear from them. Uh, t- Tony, I'll, I'll start with you, since uh, uh, Paul just mentioned your role within the, the NHS there. 2020 has clearly been dominated by the COVID-19 global pandemic. You know, what's it been like at the front line? I'm going to ask um, uh, Tony first, but Justin, I'll come around with you, the same question. You know, please, um, can you describe your practice and give us an idea of how many patients you would have seen in a typical week before uh, COVID and then and then what happened subsequently. So thanks, Kevin. Well, um, so one of the joys of my role is I'm still a practicing surgeon um, on the front line of the um, uh, NHS, as well as being an associate medical director in my hospital group and then having a national role at NHS England. Um, so I've kind of had the opportunity to look at the changes and the responses of, uh, uh, you know, really the clinicians who are dealing with this firsthand, and then to look at how policy is sort of enacted uh, regionally and then generated nationally and, and, and what's gone on. But with your question on, on the frontline deliberately, you know, I trained as a specialist urologist. I have an interest in minimally invasive surgery. Um, and yet, as the first wave of the pandemic hit, um, uh, most of my colleagues, including myself, were moved on to COVID rotors. So no longer was the specialist surgery I performed being done at the rate it was done. Um, lots of our elective lists were cancelled. 
um, we got to a point in my hospital at South End where nearly all of our anaesthetic machines, once we'd used up all our ventilators, all our anaesthetic machines were being used for ventilating COVID patients. So we could maintain our emergency surgery, but elective surgery wasn't an option. And it's very difficult. And we saw that pattern replicated in the first wave across the country, particularly in the South. And I think in the second wave, what we've seen now is it's affected at this moment in time, the North much more who are going through very much what we went through to start with. And I know colleagues of mine in Leeds or other parts of the country are now looking again to enter general COVID rotors where doctors are put in there, no longer colorectal surgeons or urologists or vascular surgeons or orthopedic surgeons, we're all doctors looking after patients. And I would say probably that's been the biggest change and that's had a whole range of knock-on effects. But um, yeah, no, and so I never thought I'd go back to being a generalist, but, but this has brought that on. Clearly it's been a, a challenge, really challenging time. So the element of all hands to the pump by the, by the sounds of things. Uh, Justin, w- w- what about you? What's been your experience? And also describe your role, because um, I, I had you down as a cancer specialist, but uh, Paul was suggesting you've had a, a wider role uh, during, uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, so I'm a busy NHS consultant as well. I'm an oncologist, and um, it's far easier to jump off a cliff than it is to climb back up it. We talk about waves, but maybe, you know, a first wave requires a trough and for the disease to go away, and it really clearly didn't. And there's a lot of hope, though, now with the Pfizer and shortly we'll have the Moderna messenger RNA-based vaccine data, which looks hugely encouraging. Um, You know, it's really affected my clinic in many different ways, some of which, as Tony describes, some of which is a lot of staff, such as nurses, who were traditionally allocated to cancer, for example, have been either switched to other roles and a lot of healthcare staff have either been quarantined or sick because of COVID. And there has been a shocking shortage of PPE. Um, My clinic on Wednesday was the first time I've been able to wear a face mask in clinic because they haven't been made routinely available. That's been a problem. Um, And patients, of course, are scared to come to hospital. Some healthcare workers are scared to come to hospital. Hospitals are understandably seen as epicenters of infection. But the second wave hasn't been as bad, probably because we're more familiar with it. Our treatments are better, whether it's trying to avoid ventilation or lying patients prone, use of drugs which may incremental benefits such as remdesivir or dexamethasone, and just being less scared of it and understanding the disease course. Secondary, as a secondary rule, I, at the beginning of February, published a couple of papers in The Lancet where we used benevolent AI's machine learning tools to identify baricitinib, which is a rheumatoid arthritis drug, an oral once daily pill, as being potentially useful in the pandemic. Now, it's no great surprise that an arthritis drug may have anti-cytokine properties and help with the storm. What was a surprise to Justin, us? sorry, just to, I meant to say at the beginning, there could be a potential jargon alert every now and then. Uh, could you just explain that, that phrase you just used? That, what was the, um, yeah. the, the attribute that you were exploiting? So sometimes some of the pathogenesis that we see when people become sick is due to the body's reaction to the virus. And that's driven by a lot of inflammation. 
in terms of the immune response to the virus. And that's given some names like the cytokine release syndrome or cytokine storm. Now, it's no surprise that an arthritis drug may dampen that down. But what was a surprise was that this drug, as predicted by the artificial intelligence, had antiviral properties and no one sort of believed it. And then Lilly scientists independently went away because they make the drug and other people started trialing it around the world in Italy and Spain. And we got really amazing data independently that we then published. And then it entered the ACT2, the Adaptive COVID Treatment Trial number two against Remdesivir in America in over a thousand people. And the top line results are positive. It's gonna be published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And today I have a paper in a journal called Science Advances with over 50 authors, 30 institutions, 12 countries, a huge effort where we show the first ever elderly cohort with a median age of 81 in about 150 people that it's very safe and effective. And we show in organoids, which is little miniature livers and dishes that that cytokine storm actually leads to the virus getting into cells, but this drug stops it. But also that the genes the virus activates are all the clotting genes, which is why we know that patients get a lot of blood clots. And that's one of the really bad things about the virus. So I've been doing all of that and coordinating that along with the day job. And the one thing I would say is that the politics of it all has really dissipated. So normally to produce, to, to set up from drug discovery to a randomized trial in phase three would take years to get a 50 author paper published with 12 countries in a journal like science would, would again take years, but everyone's wanted to work together and the walls between industry and pharma and academia and different countries and different institutions has come down. So for example, this paper involves clinicians, geriatricians, rheumatologists, oncologists, molecular biologists, cellular biologists, computer scientists, bioinformaticians, mathematicians, the whole spectrum of people communicating together. And that's been really encouraging. And with things like that, we've managed to get a vaccine now in 11 months since the pathogen was identified, which is again, the speed of things is truly unheard of. Well, Justin, I'll stop you there. That's uh, fascinating. And uh, again, you're um, explaining how much collaboration is going on within uh, the medical and the scientific establishment. Paul, what's your thoughts on what um, you're hearing here? I mean, you're, you're saying you've been hearing this kind of thing already in your sort of a boardroom of discussions. But um, yeah, what's your what's your thoughts? It's always remarkable, isn't it, what people can achieve when, when, when they come together and, and work together. And, and humanity in general manages to overcome tremendous challenges when it chooses, as Justin said, to set aside personal interest and work collaboratively together. I guess the fascinating thing about all of this is whether or not it can be held onto and maintained as we move beyond the pandemic and we start to hopefully focus back on more mundane domestic issues for all of us respectively in the countries we live in and the healthcare systems that we have. But it truly has been uh, amazing to, to to see all of this. I mean, again, it's it's very easy to criticise uh, the, the the scientific community to criticise organisations like the NHS in terms of the provision of care. But but the the speed with which all of this unfolded and the challenge that's had to be met, I think, is 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 um, 
difficult to really comprehend if you're if, if you're not up close to, to, to the reality of, of having to do it. And the vaccine as well is going to represent yet another example of, uh, of an unprecedented need to collaborate globally and, and also to do something logistically at the NHS level here in the UK that's never been done before. You, you know, we, we're talking about potentially vaccinating the vast majority of people in the country. Um, and, and we've never done that, and certainly not quickly. Well, that's there's a whole challenge that you've been talking about of, of that sort of next stage. You know, uh, once we get the uh, Pfizer vaccine and and and, the, and any, any others that might be are in the pipe pipeline. Um, should we go back to to, to to Tony and hear what how he's a bit more of his thoughts around the collaboration that's been going on and that, yeah, any changes to your practice as a result of of the crisis? You know, you've been pulled into sort of other work. Uh, to tell about but in terms of your um your practice have, have you have there been new developments uh, that you've encountered or that you've worked on as a result of dealing with the emergency sure so i think i mean there have been a number of things and i would echo justin's um, observations about this collaboration where before it would have taken a long period of time and people would have been in their silos and you'd have had to have gone through various procedures but Quite frankly, it's been a, a everyone's rolled their sleeves up across different um, organisations, whether it's clinical commissioning groups and provider organisations in the National Health Service, whether it's organisations around sharing data. And I think, I mean, it'd uh, be interesting to see what Justin's reflections are. I think one of the strengths of the National Health Service has been in this pandemic, because we're a unified healthcare system, actually. We have led the world in some of the clinical trials that have been able to gone ahead, have gone ahead because we've shared data, particularly across research coming out of our intensive care units. If you look at the work done on dexamethasone, which we were able to step forward as a country, and whether you were down in, you know, Truro um, uh, in the southwest or in Tyneside in the northeast, data from um, patients on intensive care with COVID were shared across the system. And we were able then to power the studies to show that actually dexamethasone was not just a very cheap drug that we know, but very effective in certain bits in, in COVID. So, Tony, this was another, another example of an existing treatment that could then be applied to COVID. It wasn't a matter of, of, of a new discovery. Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the benefits of our system. And, uh, you know, we, we sometimes in it's very easy to stand on the side and criticise, isn't it? But, you know, in Great Britain, we have, I think, the second largest um, university base on the planet. And we have the world's largest unified healthcare system. And if that's not a great opportunity to help transfer those great ideas um, out of um, uh, out of our, uh, you know, clinics, out of our labs and get them into the marketplace where they can work. I mean, I was really impressed by what Justin said. They've been working with benevolent AI. These, these kind of um, uh, collaborations between academia, between academia, clinicians and industry have, have really been accelerated and, and kind of changed things. But with, with regard to your question on changing clinical practice, I mean, we moved from face-to-face -face, um, consultations really rapidly. And everyone thought, um, you know, video would take over. But actually, the data that was already in the world's literature from mature digital healthcare systems, so I'm looking at countries like Sweden and, uh, and organizations like Kaiser Permanente in the United States, 
actually, when they published their data, only around 2% of patient interactions were done via video, and that had kind of stabilized. So I think in Kaiser, it was around 300,000 or so consultations per year, which is a small percentage. And what I've observed in locally in the NHS and, and hearing more and more from our colleagues as they're writing this up across the system is actually that um, telephone consultations are the thing that really um, took off um, at pace. And in my practice in, in you know, uh, minimally invasive surgery, it's more been, um, I would say, well over, yeah, 98% of my consultations have been by telephone. Sure, there are some things we've had to bring the patients in for, um, but actually, so some of those things you might have expected we would have done, we, we haven't necessarily done. Um, but yeah, collaboration has been accelerated. And I, I wonder how we can keep hold of that, sort of what lessons we can learn. Because just imagine we've unlocked this now. If we could continue that rate of industry, of funders, of commissioners of healthcare, of providers, of academics working together, wow, that could really transform the future of healthcare and life sciences. Yeah, well, um, that's a that's a very encouraging uh, sort of prospect or, or suggestion, uh, Tony. Uh, Justin, uh, you know, you, you you're making uh, great strides with your work there on the with benevolent AI. Are there um what what, what else lies ahead? Do you think uh, are there any other tools out yeah. there you wish that you could uh, deploy yeah, but uh, aren't yet um, supported by the NHS? I'll just comment on that in a second. I just just to take forward what Tony said, you know, I played a pivotal role and helped organize the ACT-2 trial in America, which was arguably the largest US randomized trial of 1,033 patients were randomized. What the NHS managed to do with nearly 180 hospitals was join everything together, have an easy consent process, easy inclusion criteria. And because the one thing the COVID pandemic has taught us is the uselessness of observational studies, so we found out that drugs like hydroxychloroquine and certain anti-HIV medicines were not helpful. That big randomized trials, when they're done properly, really give answers to the world. So Tony described that as with dexamethasone. To me, some of the bigger findings have been what, for example, something like the WHO solidarity trial didn't show what it shows. So that didn't show that four antivirals were effective. To me, not showing something is as important as showing something. And the NHS has really led the world when it comes to this because there's so many single arm studies and when you have a disease where the vast majority of people do recover, you know, obviously, it, it, you know, you're gonna have a lot of people saying it looks like our drug works, but the only way to find that out is by having joined up thinking. And clinicians really bought into this. Another encouraging thing is that I'm editor of a big journal and there's been a history of some rather unsatisfactory science coming out of China. What we're now seeing is with the remdesivir trials in China, the HIV trials, the Kalitra trials published from China, they actually published negative studies as well. And that for me was hugely encouraging. And we're now seeing a lot of global collaboration going on. So the world is becoming a very, very small place with this. Now, the whole Zoom infodemic has helped with that because we've realized we can work hard from home. You can sometimes have more meetings from home than you could ever have in real person and all of that sort of thing. And 
even today, you know, we can have an, a nice appropriate discussion without having to get in a cab somewhere. And I think as opposed to criticizing the NHS or elevating it to the rank of deity, it's become a really functional organization that's led the world. And it's basically also taught us that what we think and feel about drugs and treatments and what the reality is are often very, very different. And that's why you need to do research. If what we thought was right was right, we wouldn't need to do research. And we know that the virus is incredibly infectious and not very deadly. That's the sort of global picture. But in hospitals, we also see it being very deadly. You know, my uncle, who was headmaster of the largest school in Yorkshire, was ventilated for a month in York before he died. And the hardest part of that was not being able to visit him. Yeah, he was going to die. I get all of that. But just to not be able to visit him or even my mother is her younger brother and comfort her. That, that was hard. And dealing with the real life stories is, is just on the front line is, is actually very, very painful. But everyone seems to understand it. And people are complaining a lot less as well. Yes, it's been an emotionally very testing period for, for a lot of people in, in addition to the obviously physical uh, ailment as well. Um, I'm interested by your comments, both of your positive comments about the NHS. The country regards uh, the NHS workers as, uh, as heroes at this time. But, um, you know, going forward, you know, you want to see some of this good practice continue. Um, you're talking about a lot of collaboration on a kind of academic medical research uh, point of view, but um, in terms of the way the NHS is is, is organised and run, is it is it just a question of of giving it more money because we can see what an important job uh, it does? I don't think anything is as simple as just giving something more money, and I think and um, we published a document called the Long Term Plan over a year ago now, and from my travels across the world, whether it's across Europe or Asia or North America. Um, that document um, actually distills lots of the thinking that is going on across global healthcare systems around how we need to change and transform care, how we need to have patients more empowered and in control of their things where it's appropriate and they want to be, but traditionally they haven't had that ability. So I think that um, we've got, uh, we can't carry on doing what we've always done. Um, you know, we've seen some pretty radical changes going on in the health service now. So regionally, we've now in Essex, we, we're specialising our hospitals. So we have our hot COVID hospital in Basildon. And in the time between the, uh, I, okay, I accept Justin's point about this has never gone away. But in the time from when we were first dealing with this disease to where we are now, We've built a new intensive care unit from scratch and we're taking all our seriously ill patients there. We've transferred our orthopaedic surgery out to a community hospital in Braintree. So we have a cold site and traditionally in the National Health Service, we've had everything on one site and at UCL hospitals, actually, they had a cold site hospital separate from the main one where they're now doing many more of their elective cases. So we are seeing and learning things and changing practice as a result. And I think perhaps one of the big kind of structural changes that will come out in healthcare is that we're going to divide the emergency workload and acute admissions, perhaps from the cold elective things. I mean, it's 
before my time and Justin's, but we used to have TB hospitals. We used to have infectious disease hospitals where these things were maintained. And okay, TB went down and, and we dealt with those more generally, but actually maybe that might start to come back. And I think we'll see that in more cold elective centres or green centres as we call them, um, where we can continue managing because patients are still, you know, in pain um, with their hips and their knees. Patients still need their cancer surgery and we need to make sure we're still delivering that. Just to go back to Paul's earlier point as well, you know, when it comes to vaccine prioritisation, you know, I published a paper in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute last week in over 3,000 cancer patients with who got COVID, the mortality was 22.4%. It was over 30% for hematologic malignancies and lung malignancies. That really shocked me. And so I just want to make a special plea that when vaccine prioritization happens, that cancer patients come to near the top of the queue, particularly um, you know, amongst many others. It was not a surprise as well that elderly men did worse, but interestingly, other known risk factors for death from COVID such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease were not significant. So again, it's important not just to focus on what it shows, but what it doesn't show. Just going back to uh, dexamethasone, um, Tony, was that, uh, was that one of the um, treatments given to uh, Donald Trump? He had dexamethasone, remdesivir, Regeneron antibodies as well, amongst many other treatments, including zinc and so forth. But Interestingly, dexamethasone probably does not benefit early symptomatic COVID pneumonia. You're supposed to use it in people on ventilators or very, very sick people. My drug, baricitinib, I shouldn't really call it my drug, but the drug I've worked most extensively with, which is a once daily tablet, um, and that therefore becomes useful for low and middle income countries as well, because it's just a pill like dexamethasone and relatively cheap, especially when you use it for a short amount of time. Um, is useful in sicker patients as well, not in early COVID. Again, the, the trial identifying dexamethasone run from Oxford, the recovery trial, a huge sort of national effort, which when we look back on the pandemic in five years time, that will certainly be in everyone's top five papers. Mm. I'm just thinking in terms of Trump, obviously, uh, it, it seems his his, his reign is, is, is coming to, uh, to an end, but uh, it has been marked in investment terms by, you know, trade wars with, with China. I'm just wondering, going back to this, uh, you know, very uh, in, uh, heartening uh, uh, collaboration, international collaboration you've both been talking about, but is there any sense in which it's been restricted? Is it, is it uh, you know, are there restrictions on Chinese scientists talking to scientists, their, their peers in the West? I have Chinese Scholarship Council PhD students. I talk to Chinese doctors all the time. What happens at a senior political level, and I'm not sure the Democrats will be very easier on China than the Republicans, just for the record. And I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs on China winning the vaccine race. And we're going to see Sinovac's phase three vaccine data this month, in fact. But when it comes to individual doctors and researchers working with China, then I've not noticed any difference. Now, when it comes to the origins of SARS-CoV-2, we're still not entirely clear about the animal host as per a WHO report two days, two, three days ago. Um, and look what's happening with mink in Denmark and a fascinating science paper on Dutch mink out yesterday showing humans transmitted it to minks who transmitted it amongst themselves. The virus evolved in the mink and then came back to humans. A little bit scary, but- um, I'd say. But 
this can only these sorts of studies can only happen with global collaboration. Paul, um, uh, you're investing quite often in American companies. Uh, uh, Is there more of a swing swing to China now? I think I think we'd like we the, the demographics of Asia are, are compelling both both population wise and, uh, and economically and I think as as barriers come down and it, it becomes easier to invest into interesting things that that's certainly something that we spend uh, a lot of time on and I was in fact looking at the Chinese stuff um, before I came on this call um, in terms of what's being discussed I think um, a couple of things I, I, I would like to ask Justin and Tony about that the, the first is you know you're, you two are ridiculously busy people but have these changes to practice you you, you know the, the the ability to to do consultations virtually do you do you feel that productivity has been enhanced without compromising the quality of the service that you offer to patients and and therefore will you, will you be able to to sort of hang on to that and then secondly just just with regard to what Tony said about these um um, you know, reorganising the, the the local trust around um, you know hot and cold sites. The, the idea of moving patients, your know, orthopaedic patients, for example, into a lower acuity ambulatory care setting, and the economic benefits of that have been available um, from 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 the US for, for, for years. So, so I guess my question would be, why does it take a pandemic to to um, to, to to prompt everybody to 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 adopt things that that in some ways from from a, from a uh, uh, an economic and an outcomes uh, perspective that the evidence has been there for a long time. I just want to make one quick observation on what Justin said before I, I deal with Paul's things and, 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 and Gavin, you kind of raised as well around um, global collaboration because one of the, and it sounds like a great, you know, worldwide loving on, but actually one of the things we saw was countries closing down the exports of some of their supply chain components when the pandemic started to reach its peak initially back in March, April time. So, for example, um, there are a number of unnamed uh, countries that um, stopped exporting ventilators despite them being produced in their country. And so actually there are some real, and we've, ha- we've seen the same with reagents around testing and, and other things that have been needed. So I think one of the other observations out of this is a country needs to maintain a critical amount of infrastructure and industry capability within it to ensure it can meet its needs. And that's why we had the ventilator challenge in our country. You know, we had automotive, aero, manufacturing companies stepping forward to help us. But what happened in the end was the only UK manufacturer of intensive care level ventilators that was left, Penlon, who were based out to the west of London, um, actually were supported to massively ramp up productivity. So an important observation, I would say, when an emergency hits, whatever the international collaboration might be, countries were very much focusing on their own, particularly with regards to supply chain components. And I think that's very important to consider in the future. But and then dealing with um, Paul's points around um, productivity and quality, there's not a lot of science that's gone on in this space and research into looking at that particular agenda around the virtualization of healthcare and medicine, like we've given to many other aspects of it. And so knowing how an organization or a nation might commission these kinds of services in a safe and appropriate way. I'm 
still seeing the same number of um, clinic patients that I saw, although it's virtually, so that hasn't impacted me. But I know nationally, the data, I think at the peak, I'd have to check this, but it was around 50% of what we were seeing the year before. And the NHS ambition was to get up to 90 plus percent. I'm not sure how close we got to that by September, October time. But the, um, so it has had an impact. Um, it's, you might think it's easier and, and quicker to do things remotely, but actually there's a lot more data to review. Patients can provide a lot of information um, while you're there with them. But actually I'm finding I'm doing many more checks in the background, reviewing results virtually and doing and many other things to ensure that the quality is maintained. There's two ways of looking at it in, in our cancer clinics. With a lot of cancer patients, doing virtual consultations is impossible. These are sick individuals, um, many of whom are scared to come to hospital, many of whom we've managed to switch to oral therapies, but they need regular blood tests and so on. And sending them to their GPs for a blood test and the sorts of blood tests we need is often suboptimal. On the other hand, there are other patients where maybe we see them too often and test them too often, and there's no point doing that. And that's the type of research that Tony alludes to that I think we're going to look back and end up doing. I mean, I think I probably have been doing too many tests and scans on too many cancer patients and the pandemic sort of worked the other way to remind- so, Sorry, Justin, I, I never thought I'd heard an oncologist admit that he's done too many tests and scans. I mean, like, incredible. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, this obsession with diagnosing recurrent disease earlier when it makes no difference to outcomes, um, to Tony's point. But, but um, w one, of the, one of the most interesting things is, for me, has been, you know, the cooperation of patients amongst all of this. And it just the reality is, is that a telephone or virtual clinic consultation does not take as long as a real consultation, real life and getting someone into a room physically and all of that. And at some sort of levels, I think what we're going to see is an efficiency increase, not just a decrease. Um, MDTs without having, you know, 20 to 30 warm bodies in a room, half of whom let's face it are asleep is a huge drain on resources. If you can do that remotely and dial in for the part where you need to be part of it, it is much, much more efficient. Okay, thanks, uh, Justin. We're getting towards the end of our time. I'm just wondering, we're, we're, we're speaking at the end of a, a week in which Pfizer and BioNTech made their what appeared to be a really dramatic announcement about the, the, the good progress in their vaccine trials. Paul, do you think it's worth just sort of starting to think about what we, how we view that? You know, obviously that had a dramatic effect on stock markets, on investor sentiments. But um, you know, what are the challenges that uh, lie ahead? How far away are we from getting uh, this pandemic beaten? I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. Can I just um, remind um, Justin and Tony that the, the question about the the acuity reorganisation as well? I'd be interested to hear their thoughts on that. On vaccines, I think uh, Justin and I have. have, have um, both said a lot about this in different forums. I mean, I think he's he's um, uh, more optimistic than me on 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 resolving these logistical challenges, and I I sincerely hope for the sake of humanity that that he is right and I am wrong. I think I think I, I see this as an unprecedented logistical challenge, and therefore assume it will take time. I've always um, thought that if you can take a vaccine 
through phase three trials after discovering a pathogen in January and have the trials report 10 months later, then a few freezers is not too much of a logistical challenge. No, that's true. But then if the government chooses to involve G4S or Serco in the process of running the thing... Without naming any names, right? Uh, indeed. Um, seriously, though, I, I, I think... I, I think the, the, the important point here is is we have we have a high degree of confidence we will have a vaccine its ultimate efficacy and things is, is is to be determined eventually and the logistical challenges are of course solvable where where i think people the, the question that that people sort of are asking themselves and would love to know is you know, when when could we start to roll back the restrictions that have imperiled people's ability to to, to spend their time how they want and see um, the, the, their loved ones when they want and so on and so forth and again that, that's the other area where I think perhaps uh, one has to be a little bit cautious we need to break the chain of transmission obviously we can rapidly vaccinate those who are I think most at risk and that can greatly reduce morbidity and mortality but as regards Covid being something that that, that um, we don't have to worry about anymore and we don't have to worry about our own role in, in inadvertently uh transmitting it as an asymptomatic spread or i think that i think that may take some more time but obviously i'd love to hear what you guys think tony why don't we start with you so many questions there from paul i mean let's start with your uh topical one around restrictions and what's happening so um my observation of um uh, the data um, we've seen from nhs england and that the government has published but also the opinions and from some of the senior medical leaders in our nation. And I think Steve Powis, the national medical director, has said this openly, that things are moving so quickly, it is very difficult to be able to stand by a prediction many months down the line, looking three, six months down, because things are changing so fast. And I think that's very good advice. I think we have to be nimble and agile and, and be able to change and adapt with the situation. I think everything we've heard is very um, positive around vaccines and, and very hopeful. And when you look at um, uh, history, and, and I think sometimes we think human beings are too smart and we can outsmart nature. Well, you know, I think I don't subscribe to that. I think we have to work with nature but actually most infectious diseases, ultimately, um, we've been able to get on top of in one way or another. And, and that kind of brings me to another point I, that I kind of felt I wanted to make. You know, one thing I think this pandemic has shown us is how important investment in the life science sector is. You know, when I contribute to a pension or a pension fund, I want them to be doing good with that money and investing in something that can transform the health of people on our planet, I think is a stunning thing to do. Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I want to really, really encourage that. I mean, you can yeah. put your money into some entertainment thing. I don't mind entertaining people, but actually cancer treatments, yeah. um, and new ways of doing things in the life science sector, hugely important. I mean, in 2019, in a US Gallup poll, of every single industry from computers to groceries, from online retail to aeroplanes, biopharma came bottom of people's sentiments as the big bad people out there. Well, they, they're the ones bringing the treatments and the vaccines in collaboration with academia and governments. And maybe the sentiment will change and people will start to support these industries and not 
and not to think of them as the big bad demons out there and so forth, just interest in profits, because these, are, these, these molecules like the vaccines are going to help tens, if not more, of millions of people. It's an interesting point, Paul, isn't it? I mean, um, have you noticed uh, that healthcare is, is, has been a, a positive sector for investors for, in terms of returns? It's been a very difficult year, obviously, on stock markets. Uh, do you think um, the healthcare, this has been good PR for, um, for the reputation for the, the global healthcare industry? Um, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very politically charged um, topic isn't it i i i surmised myself I, I bet i wouldn't have to wait a day to see an article in the guardian saying that the pfizer's patents uh, on the on their vaccine should should be nationalized and and it should be given to everybody for free and and they didn't disappoint me in that regard so the same arguments about um you know government funded research and making returns and all these different things are, are, are going to continue um i think for, for, forever but but you know um but, both Tony and Justin make, make an extremely good point. It's very unlikely there's anybody listening to this podcast when it comes out, or indeed, if I speak for myself, actually involved in doing it, who, who would still be here if it were not for the uh, products and services of these companies. You know, you know, we've all spent time in hospital, likely is not a certain point, and um, uh, sometimes for something serious. And, and, and the reason that people do get to live to 80 years old is primarily because of modern medicine. So I think we have a lot to be thankful for and, and a huge amount to be proud of as well. You know, as Justin said, 11 months from, from um, a genetic sequencing of a pathogen to a phase three trial readout is, is unprecedented in human history and is something we should all be tremendously proud of and tremendously thankful for those that have, have, have made it happen. Um, and, 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 and you're right, you, you know, is, is it really true that this is a worse industry than extractive industries that damage the environment and pollute the atmosphere and all these other things i mean everybody has their own their, their own views but but i do think the industry um uh i hope the industry will will will, will um try and improve its its uh, public perception on the back of everything that's been achieved well that's uh that's a possibly a good note to end on paul have you got any remaining questions unanswered from your uh no, no I'm, I'm, I would like to take the opportunity on behalf of, of, of all the listeners to, to thank um, uh, Justin and Tony for their insights and their time and, and, and to you, Gavin, for, for organising this. I found it um, very enlightening, as I always do, chatting to these gentlemen. On that note, Justin, Tony, it has been a pleasure to, to meet you and to, to, to hear your views. You are extremely busy, but uh, hopefully we might be able to uh, uh, rearrange a uh, part two on this, this discussion. Um, Paul, thanks very much for your help as well. But in the meantime, I hope everyone enjoyed that. Look out for uh, our, our, our next episode. There's, there's two more to come and I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. Mm-hmm.